I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk, the Jewish Chronicle podcast sponsored by the Athena Advisors. I'm Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle, and in each episode, I'll be joined by a special guest to reflect, debate, and have a bit of a schmooze. This week, I'm delighted to welcome the Reform Rabbi, writer, and columnist, Rabbi Jonathan Romain, who's now chair of Dignity in Dying, the campaign group that advocates for the legalization of assisted dying for terminally ill patients. In his latest Jewish Chronicle column on the topic, he writes, Assisted dying is a matter of compassion the compassion not to force other people who are suffering to keep on suffering if they reckon it's time to let go. Rabbi Romain, welcome and let's talk. Thank you very much. I want to talk to you uh, really about your position as chair of Dignity in Dying, this campaign group which wishes a change in the law to allow assisted dying to become legal. But before that, let's talk about your, your Jewish background and the path that led you to become a rabbi. What was it like growing up in your, in your household? Well, I was lucky enough to come from a sort of mixed-faith family, uh, by which I mean Sephardi and Ashkenazi, which was mixed-faith uh, back in the day. Um, and so I had the best of both worlds. Uh, certainly, in, in both cases, of course, it was from an orthodox upbringing. Uh, my parents were fairly traditional, you know, Friday night, Hanukkah, Pesach, High Holy Days, but not ultra-religious. And on my mother's side, uh, she was a refugee from Nazi Germany, came over with a kingless transport, I had the Ashkenazi background. My father's family had been here since uh, 1790 uh, via Bevis Marx. And so I had the Sephardi background as well. So I felt very enriched by having sort of access to both heritages. Although at a certain point, um, I decided to become a reform rabbi because I felt that although emotionally I was quite at home in orthodoxy, intellectually I wasn't. And I certainly felt I could be a more effective rabbi 
and, and, and reach out to people better uh, uh, if I was sort of a reform and therefore could marry the, the best of the traditions of the past with the realities of today. The idea of being part of the Ashkenazi and Sephardi tradition, that's quite unusual, actually, even in this day and age, isn't it? Yes, and it was lovely because it meant um, wherever I went, and I went to initially Wembley United Synagogue, and then also there was the uh, Lorde del Rey, Spanish and Portuguese. Um, it, it meant I felt at home, and I had a real sort of sense of Jewish roots on, on all sorts of different levels. Did, did you find that there was um, a lack of understanding from between one side and the other when you went into these different worlds? Oh, not greatly, because although I said it was a mixed marriage, it was a joke really compared to um, what, 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 how we define mixed faith marriages today. Um, and yes, of course, there are slightly different traditions and the service and the liturgy is slightly different. But what's astonishing uh, is just how similar they are and how Judaism, which, you know, uh, spread across the world and across the centuries, yet you can get a Sephardi Jew and Ashkenazi Jew who sort of will still keep 90, maybe 95% of the same things and, and relate to Judaism in the same way. Whereas you can get someone in Cornwall who can't understand someone who's uh, in, in Newcastle and, uh, you know, in the same country, and yet Jews have managed to have this homogeneity across the centuries, which is quite remarkable. And if we think about your journey to become a rabbi, was it a spiritual awakening? And when did it happen? No, not really. And there was no sort of like magic moment of a thunderclap or a spiritual moment. It was really just a growing feeling. And actually from quite young, from about 11 onwards, that this was something that on a very selfish level I would enjoy and on a more altruistic level that might be you know, helpful to others and a useful way of spending my life. I think I also had a bit of a naive attitude to, in, in those days, of course, you know, I thought of people sort of thundering down from the pulpit um, and I, I had hellfire and brimstone, and it was only later I realized we don't have hellfire and brimstone in our theology. But nevertheless, the, the, uh, uh, the feeling of, of, of wanting to be a rabbi, and I never had any other desire to be any other uh, profession, uh, remained. And I, frankly, I've, I've enjoyed it. And uh, uh, to be honest, I always feel that I'm, I'm actually paid for, for doing my hobby. So you, you signed up for the brimstone and, and, and stayed for the hobby? <laughs> Something like that. Just to explore a little bit more the, the, the reform aspect, because I grew up also in, in a reform, sorry, in, a, in an orthodox uh, environment. And the idea of reform in the orthodox world, in, in, particularly in those days, was, was quite almost taboo. It was quite disparaged, really, in, in orthodox circles. Did you, did you find that? And how did you sort of grapple with the idea of moving across to the other side, as it were, to the, to the reform side? Uh, yes, you're quite right, and certainly, um, you know, in uh, in the sixties, uh, there was uh, a, enormous hostility uh, between, uh, well, uh, largely of the Orthodox towards the Reform. And I say in the sixties because in earlier periods, I think the Orthodox felt that they could just ignore Reform and just dismiss it as an aberration. But it was really in the sixties onwards that Reform started growing much more in Britain, and therefore seen by the Orthodox as a threat. And if you read back copies of the Jewish Chronicle. Uh, in those days, 60s and 70s, it was full of uh, ding-dongs between the Orthodox and the Reform, and it was really quite sort of uh, unpleasant reading, really. Mm. I think things have calmed down now. Uh, I, I, I don't think the Orthodox approve any more of the Reform than they did before, but I think rather like in America, they've just um, accepted reality. And, um, you know, we take it for granted that there are Catholics and Protestants, and, and I think we're in, in the Church, for instance, 
uh, and we've had to sort of learn that there's diversity and pluralism in Judaism too. Uh, not that it's a modern thing, of course. I mean, you go back to the first century, time of the Mishnah, you know, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the uh, Dead Sea Scroll sect and the Therapeuti. And Judaism, you know, right back then had multiple strands. And then we sort of got used to just orthodoxy. And now we've reverted, if you like, uh, to uh, the earlier form of uh, multiplicity within Judaism. I think one thing that orthodoxy and orthodox childhood gives you is a sense that uh, the orthodox standard is the gold standard, as it were, um, and that uh, reform is in some way a diluted version of it. And when I say give you, I mean it sort of it gives you that uh, that instinct because of your your sort of orthodox upbringing. At least I, I find that in a way. I mean, even now, I'm not really religious very much at all, but I. I want the um, the synagogue I don't go to to be an orthodox one, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Have you sort of grappled with that sense of, of reform in some way being a diluted version of orthodoxy? I certainly recognise what you're talking about, and I suppose that's much more on the emotional level mm-hmm. of, of thinking orthodoxy is the real thing, whereas it actually isn't. It's sort of more or less 16th century. Uh, and, you know, we, we look at the Hasidim and, and their fur hats and think they're the real thing. Of course, they're just aping what used to happen in 16th, 17th century uh, Eastern Europe. And there's nothing Hamish uh, about the Hasidim. And it's a bit like our reaction to Fiddler on the Roof, which everyone sort of sighs at and cries at. But actually, no one wants to be back in, in Fiddler on the Roof country uh, and, and the poverty and the anti-Semitism. And, uh, and it's the same with orthodoxy. I find for me, I mean, you know, if you are orthodox and you're happy being orthodox, that's great. But for me, uh, you know, its attitude to uh, modernity, to women, uh, to, to Jewish law and, and, the, and the terrible, to be honest, abuses that Jewish law permits, like the, um, uh, the agunar and the chained wife. To me, it is horrendous that uh, an unethical law can still be a Jewish law. And it's things like that which sort of uh, remind one that, you know, orthodoxy has its uh, pluses. Of course it does. Uh, but for me, it's got stuck. Uh, and and, it, and Judaism needs to modernize, which it's always done. I mean, you know, frankly, if Moses came back today and went to a United synagogue, he wouldn't have a clue at what was going on. So, you know, Judaism's always changed. A reform is just the latest manifestation. We've had conversations in the past, uh, Rabbi Romain, about God. Not many, one or two. Uh, and I was quite struck by how, um, I wouldn't say atheist, but how sort of um complex your idea of god is it's it, it struck me as much more radical than i would have expected from a rabbi i, I guess i would expect the fire and brimstone and your view of god is much more so sort of subtle and nuanced isn't it i think that's actually the jewish view uh to be honest i mean it's really noticeable how if you go to orthodox sermons it's all about halakha and how we should behave but very little about theology and about god in fact, one of the books I wrote about um, about Reform Judaism, I got reviewed by the Bishop of Oxford, and he said, this is a typical Jewish book. It's got 200 pages, 180 on what to do, and, and 20 about God. If it was a Christian book, it would be exactly the other way around. But do you, do you believe in God, or I remain? Oh, yes, yes. Um, I mean, for me, God is a bit uh, is a bit like a code word, H2O. Um, God is that power which somehow created the world and is somehow responsible for life as we know. Uh, and that's a long sentence, and we say G-O-D for short. But for me, what's really important, and for me, the joy of Judaism is, is, is its practicality. And, and I rather like the saying um, that to be a good Jew, you don't have to believe in God. You just have to do what he says. <laughs> and on with it is the being Jewish. It's being helpful, being friendly, being kind, being charitable. You know, that's to me is what is so important about Jewish community life. 
Well, let's move on then to the idea of life after death before we come back to talking about dignity and dying. Um, I read an, an article that you that you wrote recently uh, where you described your thoughts about the afterlife. You compared souls to drops of water going down a window pane, I think, and then coalescing into some pool of water at the bottom. Um, that seemed to me to be quite an untraditional view of the afterlife. Am I right? Well, I mean, the traditional view of the afterlife is we don't know. And that whereas Christianity, you know, has a clear map of the hereafter with heaven and hell and limbo and perdition, uh, the rabbis of old have always said, we don't know, and, and been happy to leave a question mark and said, what's important is what goes on in this world and this life. And when we get to the next world, well, then we'll find out. And that's God's realm in the meantime. But there is an idea of heaven, though, isn't there? There is an idea of heaven and even hell in Judaism. Uh, well, the, the, we've got the words, but we've got no idea what actually happens there. I mean, you know, all the rabbinic stories, um, you know, when you get to heaven, you'll be asked, you know, not so much how many candles you lit, but were you honest in your business dealings? That's, you know, traditional Mishnaic. It doesn't tell us a thing about heaven. It tells us about how we should be on earth. And, and, and the rabbis have been, you know, quite honest about the fact that, uh, you know, to put it bluntly, no one's ever sent a postcard back. And, um, and we just simply don't know. And rather than try and guess, we concentrate on the here and now. Yeah, every... Jew will have a portion in the world to come and things like that. I mean, it is, it is referred to in the scripture. What does that mean? That's hopelessly vague. I mean, I think in Christianity, there's a sense of living, of almost uh, sacrificing the here and now for the sake of, of, of the afterlife, of, of, of glory, the glory of God after you've died. There isn't that sense in Judaism. We're more rooted here in, in how we live now. But nonetheless, the, the, you know, heaven is, is certainly referred to quite a lot. Yes, um, but we, you know, there is certainly the Jewish belief that the body may crumble, but the soul carries on. But we don't know how. Um, we don't know if we will still have our individuality. Or in the image that you quoted from me, um, you know, we're like raindrops, which uh, you can see the course of our life as we go down that pane of glass, but then we fall into the puddle of water. We're still there, but we've lost our individuality. But that's just a guess. Mm. All, all we know is that something may happen. But look, guys, let's concentrate on what happens this afternoon and whether you help an old lady across the road or not. I mean, that to me is very Jewish and it's great. I suppose uh, as a rabbi, you're, you're involved in the life cycle of a great many people. And that involves a lot of bereavements and funerals as well. Yes. I mean, you know, uh, uh, the sort of hatch, match and dispatch. Uh, sort of tradition is 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 um is exactly what the rabbis are all about, and, and it's interesting you you raise that because you know there's that old sort of a little libel. You know, rabbis are um, uh, invisible six days of the week and unintelligible on the seventh. <laughs> but it's really not true. What what is true is that a lot of our work is with small groups or one to one. So yes, the congregation will see us on a Friday night and a Shabbat morning. Uh, but in the meantime, we're doing a lot of work, uh, whether it's individual teaching or with small groups or visiting hospitals or visiting people at home. Uh, and the rest of the congregation doesn't see us do all that. Uh, but boy, do we work hard. In fact, well, over time. And I can honestly tell you, I don't think I've ever been to bed the same day that I woke up. And you've written very movingly about how your experience of helping other people through bereavement and grief has, in a way, sort of helped you uh, in your own experiences. Yes, I mean, very sadly, one of my sons, uh, Benedict, died. Um, uh, he drowned on his honeymoon in January of this year. And yeah, you know, it's horrible and it's tough. But one of the things that's helped me, I suppose, is knowing that, you know, I've seen so many other people suffer. 
and and that I'm not alone and I don't feel that I'm being sort of picked out and God's punishing me. That's just part of the ups and downs of life. And I also know uh, that, you know, people come through it. Um, you know, the old sort of cliche, time is a great healer. You know, it's a cliche because it's true. And although, of course, you never have that, you never forget that grief and there's always going to be a black hole in my heart. Um, as you can probably hear from my voice changing, um, you know, we'll still live with it. And I, I've seen people, in fact, only the other day, I, I, I saw some people at a dinner and they were laughing and joking and drinking wine. And I thought, you know, gosh, six years ago, their son jumped off a skyscraper and committed suicide. Uh, and, and they were devastated and thought their world had come to an end. And here they were back in the stream of life, not because they're callous, but because the life force within us just impels us and keeps us going. So I take great comfort from that. And has your, has your own experience of, of grief personally given you new insights that you can share with people that you support in your, in your job as a rabbi? Well, it, it, I haven't learned anything new, but I, I suppose I can speak with more authority in that I no longer say, well, I empathize with you. I can actually say, well, I know what it's like. I've been there. Well, I know there was a, a great deal of sympathy for you in, in the community and, and in the Jewish Chronicle as well. So uh, I, I hope that that made some small difference at the time. And, and there's lots of support for you uh, at the moment and, and in the future as well. Yes, thank you. And it, it did mean a lot because um, can't, you know, the, the, the nice words or the hugs can't bring my son back, which is what I really want, but it, it does help. It, and it was much appreciated. And now a quick word about our sponsor, the Athena Advisors. They are a global consulting firm driven by a belief in social justice, helping charities and NGOs to repair the world through excellence in fundraising. Boards of trustees, executive teams, and philanthropists turn to the Athena Advisors to help them develop their capabilities, systems, and skills more effective fundraising. With hubs in London and Washington and a diverse team of professionals on four continents, they help organizations ramp up their impact and reach. To find out more about how the Athena Advisors drive organizational performance for good, visit theathenaadvisors.com. So moving on, Rabbi Remain, to your role as the chair of Dignity in Dying. Can you tell me a bit about what that organization is and, and how you came to be involved with it? What we're pressing for is to legalize assisted dying. Uh, now, let's, just let me explain, because the terms suicide and euthanasia and assisted dying are often confused. Suicide is when someone takes their life. Uh, you know, often, if they hadn't done so, they may continue for another 20, 30, 40 years, but they chose to take their life for whatever reason. Um, euthanasia is when somebody else, another person or the state, uh, kills you. Assisted dying is when a person takes it upon themselves to end their life if they are already terminally ill. So it's not like a depression in their mid-40s. They are dying. They've been given, uh, told by the doctor they've only got a few weeks or months left. And not only that, they are dying in great pain um, and they wish to let go of life rather than c continue on. Now, there's a lot of people who will just carry on to their last breath great and we need to support them 100% through hospices and uh, hospitals and every possible palliative care. But there are some people, and I'm sure you know them and certainly your listeners will know them, either in their family or friends, who've got terrible diseases like, I don't know, motor neuron or Parkinson's or forms of cancer, and they're in great agony. Palliative care is wonderful, but there's still things that it cannot help with. Um, in fact, only Last week, the uh, select committee of the House of Commons, uh, some palliative care experts said, 
You know, we still can't help everybody, some people, but not everybody. And so in those situations, if somebody wants to let go of life and say, thank you, God, it's been great, but I really don't want to endure any more agony, we think they should be able to do so. And the assisted bit comes in where they can get a prescription from their doctor, and then they have to take it themselves. But the whole thing is that they themselves are in charge, um, so it's not somebody else doing it to them. The assistance is purely that they are given the prescription uh, and the other two red lines are they have to be mentally competent and uh, terminally ill. Now, I just want to bring up a few examples. One is the Belgian uh, woman, Shanti de Corte, who witnessed the Brussels airport attack in 2016 and was so disturbed by it, um, she experienced, I suppose, PTSD, that she uh, eventually took the option of assisted dying, I suppose, this year. How do you feel when you hear stories like that? Well, for me, that is a very distressing case, but it certainly wouldn't be what I would call uh, legal, uh, and certainly not the system that we're calling for in England. There are different um, rules in different countries, and the one that we want to have here is the one that's been in Oregon uh, in the United States, which is those three things of terminally ill, uh, mentally competent, and of their own free will. And I specifically say that partly to guard against people who may be going through a bad patch or depression um, and who might otherwise have changed their mind a couple of years later. But also the thing about Oregon is that they've been doing this for 25 years. In other words, uh, we've got a quarter of a century's worth of statistics and evidence to show that how the system works, the fact that it does work, and also that the, the same parameters that started right at the beginning, those three red lines, uh, still apply today. And that's what the British version we think should be. And we feel that it's, it's a matter of compassion. And, and therefore, you know, I'm coming at, uh, at it from a religious perspective. You know, we, we try and relieve people of suffering where they're living. Why don't we try and relieve them of suffering when they're dying? There's a vast public support for it. I mean, the latest poll by Populous showed 84% of the population wants it. And not only that, but within that, they broke it down and found that 79% of people of faith by which they defined as they go to church or synagogue or mosque at least once a month. So it's not, not just a high holy days. It's people who, who take their religion seriously. They also want it. So actually, there's an enormous amount of support in the country. I feel it's around the corner in that it's going to be coming. There's enormous momentum. There are bills going on now in uh, Jersey, Isle of Man, France, Ireland, and the other route in Scotland uh, next year. And that eventually it will come here too. So you mentioned the example of, of Oregon, and that's, that's one example but there's also the example of Canada, isn't there, which has, uh, which legalised medical assistance uh, in dying or made in 2016 for people with terminal illnesses. It hasn't been an easy ride. It hasn't been it hasn't been free of controversy. Last year, there was um, a, a, an official apology had to be issued when a veteran, a military veteran who was suffering from PTSD, was offered medical assistance in dying without him asking for it as a as a possible solution for his. PTSD that evoked an apology and last week a woman called Lisa Pauly who's 47 years old suffered from anorexia for for many years said that she was going to be taking advantage of the change in the law in March that would allow assisted dying for people who've got mental problems not just terminal problems so it seems like Canada is really an example of a slippery slope what began in 2016 as uh, medical assisting assistance for dying only for terminally ill people, is now being opened and opened 
to accommodate people who have mental illnesses. And the fear is, I suppose, that people who might otherwise be healed will nonetheless uh, either go themselves or even be ushered into the route of assisted dying. Well, what happens in Canada happens in Canada. Uh, but I'm not entirely sure if those facts are correct because there's a different situation where I think some the, the high court in Canada intervened in a, in a, in a permissive way and they wouldn't be allowed in this country. But, you know, we're, we're British and we can have a British system which British MPs uh, legislate for. And as I said, the importance of Oregon is it's not just like, oh, this happened the other day. It's been happening for 25 years and has been a very successful and watertight system. And, and that's one of the things that helped change my mind and think this is worth doing. Uh, and it's these safeguards which are enormously important. But you seem to have a lot of confidence that we'd be like Oregon and not like Canada. Yes, because we've got a, a, a different system whereby the courts in our... What, what happened was that the uh, the High Court in Canada uh, intervened in, in a way that would not be allowed uh, in, in this country because of their different system. You know, uh, they drive on the right side of the road in Canada. That doesn't mean to say we have to drive on the right side of the road. We'll, we'll do our own thing in Britain, which British people and the British MPs elect for. And, and that's why I think it's so important to have these really cast-iron rules terminally ill, mentally competent, and their own free will. Another objection that people often have about assisted dying is that, you know, you've got granny in a care home who's unwell, and you know, her, her children are quite keen to get their hands on her inheritance. And she begins to have conversations with them that lead her to say, you know, I don't want to be a nuisance. I don't want to be a burden. Let me just, you know, take this option. And then that, and th- there's a sense that she could be pressured in some way by her children. People often bring up that that objection. Is that something that you've that you've considered? Well, people bring up the objection, but frankly, nasty relatives are nasty relatives, and will be so already. But they wouldn't have the same recourse if if the law prevented assisted dying. Uh, yes, except that one of the ways to try and ensure that uh, people do it of their own free will is that Granny uh, would have to be interviewed by two independent doctors that's independent of each other and also not her family doctor and not with anybody else around and it will be ha- they'd each have to interview her separately and just to make sure that it's something that she really wanted as opposed to being pressurized but of course it's not just a matter of coming to the end of your life you have to be in in great pain or distress and most people if they're not in pain or distress will want to carry on as I'm sure I will do, but I think it's really important that we have this safety net. And that's the interesting thing about Oregon. A lot of people have applied for permission, but actually don't take it because they want to have the emotional safety net to know things get really, really awful, um, then they can uh, take that prescription. And and to me, um, it's not a matter of shortening life. It's a matter of shortening a painful death. And, and it's out of compassion to help distress, to relieve suffering. And that, to me, is a religious value. I think it's one of those things, isn't it, that that is filled with compassion in terms of organisations like the ones that the, the one that you lead and people who are supporters of assisted dying. They do they are supporters of it because of compassion, but it's just the people who take a step back and worry about the implications of it um, who perhaps don't get on board with it in quite the same way. Uh, correct, but that's that's all the more reason um, to make sure that whatever legislation there is is framed properly with all the right safeguards and boundaries. And, and, and the other interesting thing is that assisted dying has been legalized in many countries, not just in the United States, but in across Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and no area that's legalized it has had second thoughts and reversed it. And you'd have thought that if things did go pear-shaped, they'd say, oh, we better roll, uh, roll back on this, roll back on this. But no, it, it's actually proved something that, that, that is helpful. 
Well, let's, I mean, let's consider this from the, from the Jewish angle then. Uh, in fact, you've written for us recently about this, uh, that it goes against certainly the traditional Jewish stance on the sanctity of life uh, and, and the wish to preserve it at all costs. Uh, yes, that's because we really didn't envisage this sort of new situation. Um, and yes, of course, Judaism uh, believes in the sanctity of life, and so do I very much so. But that doesn't mean the sanctity of suffering. Uh, there's nothing holy about agony. Um, and therefore, if people are, are, as I said, terminally ill, dying in pain, then why would, and, and they want to let go, then why would we not? It, it, I mean, whose interest are we forcing them to stay alive? Uh, you know, I, I, I talked to a meeting the other day of, of people who were a little bit iffy. I was very iffy about the whole thing. There was about 100 people in the room. And, and they, they pummeled me with hard questions, which is fair enough. And I said, right, uh, at the end of the meeting, I said, look, if you yourself were dying in pain, would you like to have the option? And there were about 100 people there. And I tell you, 100 hands went up. And I said, fine. So if you want it for yourselves, why don't we have it for other people? And that's what it's all about. It's a matter about people having options. Yes, I'm going to die at home. Yes, I'm going to go to a hospital. Or yes, I'm going to have assisted dying. There, it's almost arrogant to say that there's only one way of dying and that we've got to insist that other people uh, who want to let go of life can't do so and have to die in pain. You choose your own method of death, but not that of other people. One of the sort of new dimensions to the debate, it seems to me, is the notion that it's um, that assisted dying could be seen as an extension of bodily autonomy. You know, this is my body. I can do what I want with it. The sort, the sort of uh, idea that comes up often in the abortion debate of, of bodily autonomy. Uh, have you come across that as being a more uh, popular way of looking at it now that perhaps wasn't in the picture 10 or 20 years ago? I'm, I'm not sure about the timeline, but it's certainly true that, you know, we made decisions we're used to making decisions about everything in life. You know, what we eat, what we wear, uh, what our career is, who we marry, what, how we use our money. Why should we suddenly have this no-go area about one of the most important things, which is how we exit life, and it's also how we deal with the pain and the suffering. And again, I have to major. It's only people who are in, in abominable pain who will want to take this up. You know, even if you're sort of not very able to get around anymore or you're um, sleep most of the day, you will still have that life force and want to continue. It's only if people are in great suffering that they will want to let go of life. And, and why should we not let them do so? Has there been any stories or people that you've known, uh, experiences that you've had, people that you've encountered that has informed your passion for for this cause in particular? Oh, constantly. That, that's one of the things, another of the things that persuaded me. You know, I do a lot of visiting of hospitals and hospices, and time after time, and again, I'm sure your listeners will, will relate to this, uh, the person has said, look, I'm in great pain. And they say to their doctor or their relative, can you, can you help me? Can you speed things up? Can you put me to sleep? And of course, the doctors and relatives have to say no, because it's illegal. And these are people who want to want to go. Um, or, or the other day, uh, I saw somebody and they said to me, you know, every night I pray I won't wake up in the morning. And every morning I'm bitterly disappointed. And then there's somebody else I can just visualize in my mind who I went to visit. Um, and I found him on his bed, but on it, not lying on his back, but on his knees and with ha- his hands, sort of, his head sort of bowed down, tucked in between his knees. And, and he was doing that to somehow control the pain he was in because the drugs, you know, that he was being given just didn't, didn't work strongly enough. In all those cases, 
why are we forcing them to live on in pain? Very, very powerful examples. I think the, I mean, of all the arguments that you hear, the counter arguments that you hear against assisted dying, are there any that really give you pause that, that you've had to really work through in your own mind? What was the strongest argument against your case, do you think? There are arguments, but I, I honestly don't think they stack up. I mean, another argument which we haven't mentioned is that, oh, you're playing God. Well, no, or, well, uh, in the sense that we're, we're constantly playing God. I mean, every time when somebody has a heart attack, we don't leave them thrashing along the floor. We put them up to a defibrillator. We'll give them a heart transplant and we'll give them blood transfusions. We're, we're contravening the will of God, um, if you like. Um, and, and we're trying to save people from, uh, anguish or pain. Uh, and, and so why can't we do so, uh, at the end of their life as well as in the middle of their life? Uh, I, I'm convinced this is the, the right, the moral and the religious way to go. And I think once we've enacted it, we will look back and think, why on earth did we not do it earlier? I think for me, the, the, the two points of hesitation that I tend to have is, is one is the slippery slope question. I mean, I know that you've talked about safeguards and legislation and being British and, and, and all of those things. But I do worry that once assisted dying is allowed for terminally ill people, as it was in Canada in 2016, um, a future government in a future time may you know with the majority support that you've that you've spoken of um may have a referendum or for political reasons or cultural reasons seek to extend that to people for example with mental illness and then the second hesitation i have is that people may end up you know particularly in the case of mental illness taking that option rather than taking the option of healing and even having that option offered to them earlier than it than it should than it should be well, that's why I'm so insistent that it would only apply to the terminally ill. And actually, I get criticised for that sometimes by people who say, oh, well, there are people who are suffering, um, but they're not terminally ill, um, so why don't, aren't you being cruel in not extending the law to them or the proposed law? But, but for me, that has to be a red line, because otherwise then we are going down the sort of the route that you're afraid of going down. And whereas, to me, it's it, it, it's only if someone is towards the end of their life. And so, we're, as I said, we're not shortening their life, we're shortening their death. You talk about towards the end of their life. It strikes me that there's some grey area there, isn't there? Uh, no, the legislation that we will propose uh, will say if somebody is designated as having six months or less to live by their doctors. And, you know, for some people, they... But there, there are so many stories of people who've, who've been diagnosed with six months left, but have then gone to live much longer than that, aren't they? Yes, and, and in which case, I'm 100% confident uh, that they will want to carry on and, and, uh, for as long as possible. And, and people, certainly, again, in Oregon, which we've quoted already, because it's just such a good uh, statistical base to quote from, really only opt for assisted dying when things are getting unbearable uh, they, they, they've lost mobility. They've, they're about to lose their ability to do anything, and and they leave it to the last minute. I mean, nobody wants to quit life early uh, if unless they have to. Um, just finally, in in terms of the, the the Jewish community and how this has been received, what sort of response have you had from people inside the community? And do you feel that it's um, it's possible to trace a Jewish tradition that would support assisted dying as well as oppose it? Well, it's really interesting. Um, certainly there's been quite a lot of pushback from the hierarchy, the chief rabbi, for instance, uh, very much against it. But whenever I talk to Jewish groups, uh, and I go prepared 
you know, a bit like feeling like Daniel in the lion's den and prepared to be mauled. On the contrary, I just pushing at an open door. Uh, and if you actually speak to individuals, uh, all of whom have gotten the experience of someone who died in pain and wasn't it awful and how agonizing it was and if only they could have gone a few weeks earlier, I find it's a very, the, the people are in favor of it being as an option. I, I don't want to pretend that Jewish commu- uh, tradition uh, legal um, permits it because it was just never on the radar. You know, the nearest I could come to giving you a quote might be that, you know, the lovely verse in Ecclesiastes where it says there's a time to be born and a time to die. But it doesn't say who chooses. Well, maybe we should be the ones who choose when we die if we are finding that life is now unbearable. That's where the playing God uh, argument comes in, isn't it? I think that I mean, you've spoken about medical intervention as being fr- as frustrating the course of nature or perhaps the hand of God. But I think that taking life does seem to have a different order of seriousness. That does seem to be something that really is is in the hands of, of God and, and taking it out of his hands is something that's done only really in extremists. Uh, yes, exactly right. In extremis, in other words, at the very end of your life when you're dying anyway, and when you're dying in great pain and do not want to live on. I mean, that's the key thing. They're dying and they don't want to live on. And in whose interest are we forcing them to do so against their will? Let's give people options. Well, very, very um, thought-provoking uh, and fascinating conversation, Rabbi Romain. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us, and I'm sure we'll, we'll speak again about this, t- this subject. You're welcome. You've been listening to Let's Talk, the Jewish Chronicle podcast, sponsored by the Athena Advisors with me, Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle. We're taking a break for the summer, which gives you a chance to catch up on previous episodes, featuring guests including Rob Rinder, Daniel Finkelstein, David Badil, Melanie Phillips, and Giles Corrin. We'll be back in the autumn for a new series of podcasts from the world of the Jewish Chronicle. See you then. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com